Welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute, and I am delighted to be joined once again by Jeff Hogan, the president of Upside Health Advisors and a healthcare guru. He has more than 35 years in the healthcare sector. He has been an expert witness on healthcare-related litigation. He's a consultant. And he regularly appears on national forums focused on moving value-based healthcare, and he is actively working to promote healthcare-related transparency measures on the market. He's a repeat guest. He's returning because in our last conversation, we really pressed him into talking with us about the future of healthcare and some of the wonderful innovations that we have to look forward to. We didn't even get into health policy, and he is an expert in that field as well. And so we prevailed upon him to return, and we feel fortunate to have him with us. So, Jeff, thank you so much for agreeing to a repeat appearance here on Y. CT Matters. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Let's talk a little bit about some healthcare policy and a little bit about where you see reform being our most urgent need. If you were sitting in Hartford and you were, I don't know, not just governor, but perhaps king, where would you devote your energy first? What problem do you see as the most urgent one plaguing our healthcare? Is it a misnomer to call it a market at this point? Yeah, I, I would say it's not a marketplace. It's We're finally moving toward becoming um, a marketplace. About 16 years ago, um, Harvard professor Michael Porter uh, wrote a book with Eliz- Dr. Elizabeth Teesberg, who's at Dell now, about this whole phenomenon, the fact that we don't have a marketplace, that in fact, um, our healthcare world is uh, balkanized. Warren Buffett talks about this uh, quite a bit. That there are almost moats around those who, you know, provide healthcare or finance healthcare in in our marketplace. So, so back to your question: What should the focus of healthcare policy be? Uh, one, payment reform, uh, moving off of our antiquated, uh, volume-dependent fee-for-service payment methodology, Uh, so payment reform, moving at risk and being accountable for your your outcomes and creating predictable outcomes, and what we call care transformation. We talked about that uh, a fair amount in the first podcast. That means providing care to people where they are whether they live in northern Maine and, and don't have physical uh, access to care, or if they're in a city and they don't have transportation, uh, care transformation means being relevant to a consumer. So an example of this that we talked about last time was the advanced primary care model, the Chen Meds and the Iora Health and the Vera Whole Health, which basically can treat the patient in person or virtually 
using an integrated practice unit. What does that mean? That means a team uh, who is at your beck and call, the patient's beck and call, a primary care physician who is responsible for the patient, knows about the patient, has access to a PharmD to manage prescriptions in your pharmacy, who has a behaviorist on the team to give you access if you need behavioral health. What is behavioral health? You mean, in other words, to sort of work with you, to diet or exercise or something like that? Could be any number of things. And right right now, coming out of COVID, the biggest demand of every employer is for, for behavioral health services, and typically their mental health. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then the, and then the last piece of this integrated practice unit thing is a health coach who can help you through whatever, whether okay. it's paying bills or navigating you to your you know specialist or whatever the case might be. This is really the you know the model, if you will, that uh, people want and need and uh, what have you. So so two things: payment reform, care transformation. These are two really. Uh, important things. Well, that's what I was curious about, because right now the fee-for-service model is what's kind of wrecking things because it's what is just driving this system we have right now, right? I mean, the more people a doctor sees, the more he or she um, is able to earn, which is what is this whole sort of get them in, get them out mentality. Is that correct? That's correct. And the really important thing here is, again, going back to employers who are really funding these plans. The majority of employers in this country use some form of self-funding, which means they may get an Anthem or a Cigna or an Aetna or a United to basically um, be the payer on their plan. But the employer actually funds the claims uh, and pays for them and purchases what we call a catastrophic stop loss to cover the events that may be untoward or asymmetric. So here's why is this so important that states focus on payment reform and care transformation because of the huge variability in cost and quality between and among the health systems that they're contracted um, within a particular state on their health plan. So let me give you an example okay. of what I mean here. Right. If you're if you're an employer, you're paying for babies and hips and knees and shoulders and cancer and, and, cancer and, yeah, sure. and cabbages and you know all kinds of things. Right. And 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 what we find when we look and certainly the employer doesn't know it until they look at their claims. Employees certainly don't know it. But a knee replacement in Connecticut, which should cost $22,000, can cost $100,000 to the employer. Why? Because we are also paying for infections and complications. And in many cases, we find that employers actually pay more for the complication and the infection than they do for the base arthroplasty. So, so this is why it's so important to focus on this accountability, the payment reform, the providers and health systems moving into risk arrangements where they're attributed to a patient and have accountability, and for these knees and hips and babies and shoulders that they pay for all the time. But how does, how does standardizing the pay cut down the risk of the infection? 
it's it's a really good question because it creates um, uh, a market and accountability. Meaning, if a health system is at risk on a knee or a hip or a shoulder, they are incentivized to provide that service without an infection and without complications because they are on the dime for that outcome. So for example, um, if in fact an employer were to uh, contract with a health system for a knee arthroplasty at $22,500, that's what the employer is going to pay. And you know, basically if that health system fails- The health system bears the cost? You got it. exactly, exactly the case. And, and actually, the state of Connecticut about three years ago moved to this type of rubric, if you will, as a value-based option for its own state employees, where in fact they went out and they contracted with Signify Health, who we talked about in the last episode a little bit, to create what we call episodes of care, to go out to provider groups who were willing to go at risk um, for these services with a certain quality wrapper around it as well. We are seeing this happen around the country. The biggest employers, the Walmarts and what have you, have adopted these centers of excellence for arthroplasty and for cancer and what have you. And what is most important here? That it creates predictability of both cost and quality. So it's probably inevitable in this day and age. So at least you'll get a chance to rate your doctors. Because one of the things that I have seen as such a loss in this new sort of bureaucratic model of, of medicine is that whole loss of incentive because the doctors are really working for the insurance companies rather than for you. You still have some wonderful doctors who are in it to practice medicine, but my father was a doctor and he practiced back in the day when his patients were his patients. He didn't work for an insurance company, he worked for his patients. He practiced a very patient-centered style of medicine. And nowadays, you know, a lot of doctors really see themselves as salaried employees who work for insurance companies. To me, that's been one of the greatest losses in the way doctors both view themselves. Um, you know, they view themselves as employees in many cases rather than professionals. And I'm wondering if you see a way back to sort of inculcating this view in doctors that they are indeed working for their patients rather than for these bureaucracies? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's also a very complicated question um, because uh, the way of practicing has been volume dependent for so long. And curiously, when you move into a value-based healthcare rubric, it allows the doctor to treat the patient appropriately. We first saw this I, I mentioned earlier two models that I really liked, and they're both in the Medicare Advantage marketplace, ChenMed, which is out of Miami, and Iora Health, uh, which got purchased by One Medical. But the really interesting uh, part of this model was that the doctor was given the opportunity uh, to really learn about the patient a lot. What, it, what were their problems? What are their issues in the first year they would touch the patient six or seven times, two in person, and the rest were, you know, using 
some of these navigators, including Firm B and uh, a behaviorist for uh, mental health issues and a health coach to say, hey, what's your problem? Social determinant problems and things like this. They would really learn what the problem was because their panels were smaller. They may only have 600 patients um, on a panel. And this is what we're finding, that the most uh, successful practices that have just been hyper-abused by volume, you know, they work 12-hour days and then they chart for another two. Oh, yeah, the charting. I remember when this started to happen and, you know, my dad hated it because it was just paperwork rather than patients. So, so the answer to your question is in this new, brave new world, if you will, this better way, there are organizations ha- who have shown that value-based healthcare allows there to be a much more appropriate or intimate relationship between the provider and the patient and that the outcomes are improved. Is that with everyone that we've seen? No, absolutely not. You know, we've seen a lot of the big organizations, you know who they are, who are doing vertical integration, meaning they're, you know, they're buying doctor practices and they're jamming them into things and claiming it, uh, that it's a value-based solution. So there are a lot of people with a lot of money out there, you know, claiming that value-based healthcare is the way that they're practicing and it's not the case. But in those, there are really great examples of situations where the panel has been shrunk. And I'll give you one more. APRNs now are much more involved in the care of the patient. APRNs. You know, have, what are APRNs? Uh, uh, so, so these these are uh, nurses advanced uh, um, nurses who are practicing, you know, at a higher level of care in in uh, Connecticut, for example, after they've worked for a primary care physician for a period of time, they can deliver primary care, you know, on their own as well. So we're seeing the use of mid-levels, PAs, APRNs, um, uh, who are being integrated into these um, smaller panels to deliver better and more accountable care and not be reliant on the volume that they had been in the past. Ah. Um, so if you, uh, if, if you were going to implement a few basic reforms here in Connecticut, how would you summarize what, what you would do? Yeah, it's, it's it, a big it's question. Also, I know, but just, it, you know, it, yeah. it, it is. So, you know, this is, um, uh, un- unfortunately, we you know we have a legislature that has two year terms and turns over and it's part time and what have you. And it's it's really hard to educate legislators and and even people you know um, in executive positions to comprehend the healthcare ecosystem. Uh, nobody ever has the time to focus on it. I'll tell you, I use Massachusetts as an example where. Um, through gubernatorial leadership and bipartisan direction, uh, they created the Mass Health Policy Commission, who looks at this, who looks at the cost of care and the quality of care in those organizations that are providing it across the state and provides some input. You know, uh, hey, you're too much. Uh, hey, your quality is poor. Hey, you should think about this and that and the other thing. They've actually done a really good job in providing data to incentivize payment reform, 
and care transformation. And they've had uh, some fairly significant success in doing that. In Connecticut, we haven't adequately invested in the basic infrastructure for showing that variation in cost and quality. So for example, we have an all payers claims database, which in other states, private employers contribute their data into so we can see where there are problems in variation and in quality as well. And for whatever reason, Connecticut can't get it straight and employers don't contribute their data um, into the all payers claims database. It hasn't been a priority for um, our legislature. The other problem is even the basic interoperability infrastructure, which is the ability of health systems and providers to exchange electronic medical record data about you and other people between and among one another. It's a very much balkanized system. We have a health information exchange, which isn't quite functional. They've been talking about it for 20 years. So the basic digital infrastructure that's necessary to make payment reform and care transformation work. Are, or even yeah. to get the information necessary to be able to adequately assess the status quo is missing, it sounds like. Perfect. Perfect. To get that and to create the appropriate incentives um, uh, in, in the system. And what does it do? It makes our healthcare too expensive. And for those employers that are trying to stay here uh, with high taxes and high cost of living, we're trying to keep their employees, uh, Stanley Black & Decker, who's trying to keep tool and die makers or Pratt & Whitney or whatever, it's really expensive. Why do employers go to other states? Because they've focused on what matters most, which is not just wages, but what benefits cost as well. Yes. And especially in the post-COVID era, I would think. Correct. Especially in the post-COVID era. Um, so it sounds as though, um, really, in terms of, of being thoughtful and trying to put together reforms, you can't even do it until you understand the status quo properly. You need to have a baseline. I'll tell you that I was fortunate uh, a couple of years ago to have the opportunity to work with the Office of Health Strategy when Vicki Veltri was there. And uh, we worked with uh, Vicki in her office to get what data is in our state's all payers claims database into the RAND hospital transparency report for the first time. And I encourage you to take a look at that and your listeners as well. The RAND, R-A-N-D, hospital transparency report uh, comes out every year and uh, surveys on uh, cost and quality for every health system. And it's transparent. You can look it up. You can compare the health systems in Connecticut. It's open source. There are other tools out there right now uh, called Turquoise Health and the SAGE, S-A-G-E, transparency tool. These are all open source tools that you can literally look at what you're paying for a hip or a knee or a baby or a shoulder uh, and what the quality is for the health systems. But we haven't focused on these things in health policy, and that's a mistake. Jeff, it is very encouraging at least to have somewhere to start, and start we must. We are very grateful for your taking the time to discuss these matters with us, and we know there is much more yet to talk about and much more to be done, and we hope you will come back another time for a third go-round about health and where we need to head in Connecticut to uh, 
to get this problem fixed. We are very grateful to you for joining us, not once, but twice. <laughs> Thanks so much. I, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. And remind everyone, um, if they want to learn more about you, where they can head. So you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, Jeff Hogan. And my email address is jeff at theupsideeffect.com. Jeff, thanks again for being with us. And uh, we are grateful as always to our listeners. And we hope you'll join us again on YCT Matters. Thanks for joining us. I'll show you around this place I call home.